Before we read, I want to point out something that we have learned in the book of Acts. In that series, over the last year and a half, we've seen that the church has a message, and it's commonly called the gospel of the kingdom. The church proclaimed the message of the gospel of the kingdom. Gospel being the word good news and kingdom having to do with someone who rules and reigns over all things. Someone who's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And of course, his name is Jesus. So how do we speak the gospel of the kingdom? Well, it has to do with sharing people, sharing with others. The good news that there is a king and that he does have authority. We need to speak of his authority over their lives. We need to speak of Christ's authority over nations. We need to speak of the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. We need to speak to the entire world what it is that God commands. And we need to speak of Jesus' victory. And he was victorious over death. He was victorious over sin. He was victorious over the devil. And we see this. In his death on the cross. And we see this in his resurrection three days later. And the truth is God's call. God commands us to speak the gospel of the kingdom. To a world that is hostile to God. And so this is our third week of a topical series. That I decided to to bring to you all. In response to Roe versus Wade being overturned. I believe as I look at our culture, and we're all living in this American culture, we're all exposed to media, we all know people who absolutely hate what's happened in our country, but there's some things that need to be said loudly and clearly. You all, is the unbelieving world that wants to murder innocent people, are they clear and rooted and grounded in their position? Do they know what they believe and why they believe it? Are they passionate and zealous about their position? You all are enemies, and they are our enemies. They want to do horrible things that God has forbid, and that they're wrecking our nation. You all are enemies. Know what they believe. They are passionate and zealous about it, and as we all know, they are very loud. I want us as Christians... To be rooted and grounded in our position. I want us to know what it is that God says about the things that are most controversial in our culture. We are the people of God and we must be in agreement with God about these matters. You all, they are difficult matters. And because of the nature of these issues, it is very easy for us To just not think about them. But I'm calling our attention to these matters, to these hot issues in our culture today, so that we can be a voice and so that we can know our responsibility to God and what He commands us as we interact with our culture. Two weeks ago, we celebrated and rejoiced that an evil, unconstitutional Supreme Court ruling that had stood for 49 years was overturned. You all, the overturning of Roe v. Wade was a great victory. It was an injustice that has been um, overruled and overturned. But we also saw that week that it doesn't go far enough. 
Every state in our nation still allows abortion. And God has said that you shall not be partial. You shall not show favoritism. But all people at all stages of life, from conception to natural death, need to be equally protected by the laws in every state. And there's not a single state in our nation that offers that. Last week, we saw what God says about children. And we live in a nation where children are not valued. And we as Christians don't value children. And and our own attitudes need to change. And so we looked at Psalm 127 to see what God says about children. Today, I want to talk about our sexuality. Now, for parents of those of you with young children, I'm going to be very general. I'm not going to be super specific about stuff. Um, I'm not going to get into names and just different things. I'm just going to be talking about sexuality, and y'all know what I'm talking about. And so the passages that we're going to be dealing with today talk about human sexuality. I want to encourage you uh, to talk about these things with your kids. That is a a safer and better place to do that um, than, you know, about the more specific things that is. I'll be speaking generally, but about the more specific things, I want to encourage you all to teach and instruct your children in this and lead them in the ways of God in it. So with all of that being said, we're going to jump into Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to read from verses 1 through 17. Follow along with me if you would. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. Because the days are evil, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Wait, you know what? I'm supposed to stop at the end of verse 17. Take a few minutes, dig into the passage yourself, and we'll uh, start our discussion shortly. All right. Human sexuality. Y'all know God had a plan for it, right? You know that that three-letter word is God's idea. And the way he made it 
It was good. If you look in Genesis chapter 2, you see God's plan as He originally designed it before sin came into the world. You see God's plan for human sexuality. In Genesis chapter 2, we have Adam and we have all the animals. And there's a lot of animals. But there's no one with Adam. There's no one like Adam with him. And in Genesis 2.18, it reads, The Lord God said to that it is not good that the man should be alone, and I will make a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall become woman because she was taken out of man. Where did women come from? Women came from men. And ever since then, it's been the opposite, y'all. Ever since then, it's been the opposite. But God took part of Adam and he created Eve out of what he took from Adam. And Genesis 2.24 says clearly, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There's your reference to sexuality. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You all, that is God's plan from the beginning. One man, one woman, in the covenant of marriage where their bodies belong to one another. And anything... Outside of that, and you know all the different ways it can be perverted. I'm not even going to start down the list. But anything outside of that original design is shameful, is sinful, and contrary to God's command. You all the people in our culture who are screaming the loudest that you're taking things away from me. And, you know, how dare you tell me what I can and can't do with my body. You all, those that love abortion and child sacrifice, y'all, they are angry. The overturning of Roe v. Wade has kindled their rage. It changes their life. Because in some states where abortion will, is now or will be heavily restricted... The people who live there are not going to be able to be as promiscuous as they once were. Because now they're going to have to face the consequences of their actions. They can't just go see a doctor and have everything undone that happened when they were in their sin. And they're acting as if we are taking something away from them. They certainly do believe that they have the right to do whatever they want to with their own body. But this is not so. It never has been. Our maker has never been okay with this. People act like they can do whatever they want to with whoever they please. But in in humanity's sinfulness, you all, we are doing everything we can to be autonomous and to shake off the limitations placed upon us by our maker. You all, the overturning of Roe v. Wade just reminds the sexually immoral and the pro-abortion crowd that they can't do whatever they want without consequence. And you all, they're mad. But the truth is, 
No one is taking anything away from them. Nobody is taking anything away from them by telling them that they can't have an abortion or that they should live a sexually pure life. All along, they've had it wrong. You all, they have deceived themselves. The lost world lives, and particularly the folks like the lady in the picture behind me, they're living in a fantasy world where they think that they get to decide what is right and wrong. You all, the lost world has made a God of themselves. And they have placed their thinking about the most important matters of life and society on a level, at least according to them, that carries more weight and authority than any other voice that's out there. They think that their word and their version of morality bears more authority than anyone else's. You all, in the word of God, as we have already seen a moment ago, he shows us clearly his design for sexuality and for marriage. And by the time you get to Genesis chapter 40, and even before then, we read disastrous stories of people who defied God and his word and reaped the consequences. If you ever want to know how to teach your kids about sex, just read the Bible with them on a regular basis, as God has commanded us to do. You all, we get into Exodus and the seventh commandment. It says, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus referenced sexuality often. One of the most popular things that he said was that if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. And then in today's passage, we get to Paul and we get to what he says. Ephesians 5, 3, sexual, but sexual and immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. There's that word saints. What is that? Well, we think of Mother Teresa. Maybe she's a saint. You know, we can think of Billy Graham. Of course, he's got to be one. You know, saints are those super really great Christians that are out there. Well, no, actually, that's not the case. The word saint in the Bible means someone who is holy. And if you've believed in Jesus, then he has given you his righteousness And he is making you are holy and he is making you holy. And so when verse three here says, as is proper among saints, he's talking about the people of God. He's talking about everyone who knows Jesus. Sexual immorality, impurity and covetousness, they are not holy. And if you are a Christian, you are not to participate in unholy, shameful, sinful sexual activity that God has forgiven. And this is abundant throughout Scripture. 1 Corinthians 6 18, it says, Flee from sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 10 8 says, We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. We read that in Ephesians 5 also. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. We get on to verse 4 of our passage. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. 
You all, we are to be thankful people. For when we are thankful, it's harder to talk about filthy things and crude jokes and awful stuff that you shouldn't be joking about. You all, I remember before I became an adult, particularly as a teenager, particularly at school, when other people around me were participating in crude joking, it was very hard for me not to do the same. And as an adult, particularly in the workplace, particularly if you're working with people around your same age, you guys, you men, especially when you're working with other men, the level of filth in a conversation can be plentiful. Men, at your workplaces, stay out of the crude joking. Don't participate in it. Leave the room every chance you get. Do not approve of it. And what we're going to see in just a little bit is it's actually good and right to expose it. Verse 4, it says, instead of that type of living, be thankful. You all, if you're grateful for your imperfect life, if you're grateful for the good and the not so good in your life, It's going to be really hard to go down this path of foolish talk and crude joking. So how do you change your ways? Let thanksgiving characterize every single part of you. And you will put to death the sin that is in you. Let's apply, let's let's think about thanksgiving through the lens of sexual immorality. Let's think about thanksgiving and apply it to sexual sin. If you're thankful for your spouse, it's going to be a lot harder to look somewhere else. If you are thankful for your spouse, it's going to be a lot harder to look somewhere else. So husbands and wives, I'm talking to every single one of us here. We all know how adultery has affected households. We all know how bad it hurts. Let us be thankful For what God has given. We get to verse 5. You may be sure of this. Y'all, that's important. Take this seriously. Listen up, he's saying. You may be sure of this. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. You all, we want to proclaim the kingdom. We want to proclaim these commands to sinners so that they may have a part in the kingdom. Sinners are not living under the authority and the rule of reign of Jesus. So we need to bring the command of God and tell them that they are to live under the rule and reign of Jesus. Jesus is the king and he has brought his kingdom. And let me just, if any of you think kingdom is a bad word because of Jehovah's Witnesses, just throw that whole thought out. You know, they call their gathering places the kingdom hall and all this stuff. That is our word. That is Jesus's word. And the way they define it is completely different from the way we define it. So I talk about the kingdom of Lot because it's one of the primary themes and messages of all the scripture. 
Don't ever be uncomfortable because I'm talking about the kingdom. I'm not making any reference to the Jehovah's Witnesses at all. Jesus Christ is the king. And all of creation is under his rule and reign and his authority. So, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. You all, an inheritance is a precious thing. Many of us have inherited things before from family members or even friends that we know and love. And as great as they were, consider God and how great He is. His inheritance is greater and more significant and more wonderful than anything else that you will ever inherit from anyone else. You all, at the end of verse 6, it says, The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. You all, our God is an angry God. And I'm glad He's an angry God. Because there's things in our world that we should be angry about, right? There's bad stuff in our world. So I'm glad He's angry. But you all, His anger is righteous. It is just. It is perfect in every way. In the Bible, we see God judge the immoral over and over and over again. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 earlier that in the book of Numbers, there were people that engaged in sexual immorality and God wiped out 23,000 of them in one day. Go read Numbers. It's like chapter 22 to 26. Go, go, go check that out. We've read in Colossians chapter 3 that you are to put to death the sexual immorality. It goes on to say, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In Hebrews 13.4, it says, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. The sinners in our world who, who love to do things their own way, they will be judged by God. They have time to repent. God is patient, but His patience is going to run out. His patience is going to run out. You all, I think about our nation. Y'all know nations rise and fall, right? Just read a little bit of history. Less than 250 years ago, there was no United States of America. In Leviticus chapter 18, God is speaking to the nation of Israel, to the nation of Jewish people. And he says, I'm going to send you into the land of Canaan. And I'm going to give you that land and I'm going to wipe them out. The truth is God was going to destroy that nation and judge them because of their sin. And there was a long and disgusting laundry list of sins, but one of the sins on that list was Leviticus, was uh, sexual immorality. And God says clearly that I am going to remove those people and wipe out that nation because they have indulged in sexual immorality. And then he turns the conversation a little bit, and he says, if you go in there and you do the same thing, then I'm going to judge you too. And the same judgment that fell upon the nation that I am now removing will also fall upon you. You all, nations rise and fall based on how they live their sex lives. You can quote me on that if you want to. Nations rise and fall based on how they conduct themselves in the sexual arena. 
It is a private arena, yes, at least it should be. But let me tell you, the implications of what happens privately are public. It's not just you and her or you and him. The consequences and the effects of sexual sin are felt throughout a nation. If you, as we move on through the passage, look at the first part of verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Have y'all ever met someone who can talk a whole lot but not say anything? Those folks drive me crazy, and I participate in that occasionally because I talk too much sometimes. But you all, there's a lot of empty words out there. There's a lot of lies that may sound good, and God says, do not let anyone deceive you. You all, what does this text mean for the people of God who are living in sexual purity? You know, for those of us who are walking with Jesus and doing the right thing, you know, we're not sleeping around. We're not, you know, doing this or doing that. How does this message affect us? Here's how. Do not be deceived by the lies of our culture. For their words are empty. Don't let anyone fool you by telling you things that aren't true. You all, our enemies would like us to think that people can live however they please and not face judgment. And God's not going to judge me. I can do whatever I want. You all, they would like us to think that God is okay with promiscuity. Well, you're just old-fashioned. Or you're just a bigot. I've been, was called a bigot recently. And so be it. I looked up, I actually went to the dictionary and looked up the word bigot, and I was like, there's a few different definitions, and one of them did apply to me. Because I was saying that my way was the only way, and all other ways were false. You all, our enemies want us to think that because of sin in the church that we can't say anything to them. Has the church been perfect throughout history? Of course not. Have pastors and Christian leaders done absolutely awful and horrible things? Of course they have. But does that mean that we can't speak out God's truth? That's what our enemies want us to think. You all, many in the American church used to endorse slavery. They used to say, well, they're my property and I can do whatever I want to with my property. You know what? The church was wrong. But because the church was wrong then, or because the church, at least some parts of the church, are wrong about some things, that doesn't mean we are to be quiet, you all. But they want to shame us for things that we had absolutely no part in. And they think that they, they, they are tempting us with empty words to think that it would just be better for all of us if we kept our mouths shut. You all, another empty phrase, and this one isn't hard to think through at all, is my body, my choice. And I'm like, no, it's not. No, it's not. That baby's body is different from your body. It just happens to be located inside of yours. It is just empty words. You all, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, it says, do not be deceived. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, it says, do not be deceived. 
God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies. You guys, our enemies want to capture you, and they want to tie you up and get you to believe their empty words. And you know, when you're tied up, you're not good for much, are you? They want to silence us with their empty words. So Colossians 2, 8, Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies. And high-sounding nonsense. Have you heard any high-sounding nonsense by experts and educated people and authors and talk show hosts and, and morning shows that you listen to on your way to work? This high-sounding nonsense comes from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. So you all, do not be deceived. Yeah, I'm all for watching the news, but you got to know that they have an agenda for you and they are trying to deceive you and they're trying to dumb things down and cause you to think about things differently than what Christ would have you. Get your truth from God himself. So we live in a pretty nasty world, don't we? How do we coexist with our enemies, you all? Well, first off, We must love our enemies. I've explained that at other times. Verses 7 through 11 call us to do something that doesn't come supernaturally to us. Causes us to expose their darkness. First off, it says don't partner with them. We see that in verse 7, right? Don't partner with them. That doesn't mean you can't be their acquaintance. That doesn't mean that you can't be a co-worker with them. That, that doesn't mean a lot of things, all right? But it does mean that there are things of a certain nature where your involvement will be so heavy that you should not go that route with them. 2 Corinthians six fourteen it says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Y'all know what a yoke is, right? A yoke, and I'm not good at describing it. My grandma's got one under her shelter. I'll bring it in here at some point. But a yoke attaches two oxen or two horses together. And, and they have a, a job to do. And it's a hard job. It's not an easy job. But they're stuck together and they can't get away from each other. And if you're yoked together with someone who hates God and you love God, then how do you think you're going to work together? How do you think you're going to move in the same direction? Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord or agreement has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? You all, we can't partner with them because we're not like them. Look at the first part of verse 8. It says you were like them. So just know in our engagement with the dark world, we have to understand, were it not for the grace of God, we would be right there with them. And that produces a humility that should be present in all of our engagement. We should be bold and we should be confident, but we should also be humble We can't forget that we were once, at one time, we were darkness. So 
We were like them, but now we're not. Now we are light in the Lord. You all, we have a new nature. We have a new identity. And when God changes us on the inside, doesn't that affect how we work and act and live on the outside? Of course it does. Look at the second part of verse B. Now that we are light in the Lord, we do what? We walk as children of light. Look at verse 10. Now that we are light in the Lord, we are to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. What does it mean to discern something? It means to know the difference. We can see what is right and we can see what is wrong. You all, we have to be discerning if we're not going to be deceived by their empty words, right? Look at verse 15 of our passage. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are what? Evil. You all, the days are evil. We live in an evil day. And you know what? They lived in an evil day. I don't know that things are any worse now than they used to be, y'all. I, sometimes we like to think that things are much worse than they were back then. And if you read history, you'll know quickly that is just not the case. You all, the days were evil then, the days are evil now. Verse 17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So now that we are light in the Lord, we've got to walk as children of light. Verse 11, the first part, it says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Hey, we're going over there to do this and to do that. Would you come with us? No, I love Jesus and he's not okay with that. I'm not going to go get drunk with you. I'm not even going to be your designated driver because I don't approve of that. And I'm not saying it's always sinful to be a designated driver, but I'm saying if you ever put yourself in that spot, you better have a really good reason for it. And it helps if the Lord sent you there. We're going to watch such and such a movie. We're going over there to that part of town. When you know you shouldn't go over there to that part of town because you know what takes place in that part of town. You all, verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. You are not to participate in the evil because Christ has called you to better things. Look at the second part of verse 11. Instead of participating, expose it. How do we expose evil? First off, let's talk about what it means to expose. It means you uncover it. You shine the light on it. This word in the Greek, when you look at how it's used in other parts of the New Testament, it always has to do with exposing something that's evil. It is often translated as correcting someone or rebuking someone. It's never used to talk about anything that's good. And here Paul is saying, expose the darkness. Light exposes darkness, right? And it's so clear. We have this theme of light and dark all throughout this passage. You all, I think the light exposes darkness in two ways. There's light switches, aren't there? If someone, if you're in a dark room and someone turns the light on, you can always leave that room, right? That's why many unbelievers don't want to come to church. They don't want to be exposed by the light, if they come in this room, they're going to hear what I'm saying. 
And it's going to expose their darkness and call them out, right? If you're here today and you're living a sexually immoral life or Monday through Friday, you're saying all kinds of awful, filthy things at work and joking around or... You know, maybe you're a stay-at-home mom and your girlfriend calls you and y'all just talk about all kinds of horrible things that you shouldn't talk about. You know, if I'm telling you God doesn't want you to do that, then the light is exposing your darkness and you don't feel very comfortable in that setting, right? So that is one way that light exposes darkness. Y'all, there's another way that's different from a light switch. And that has to do with a flashlight. Has anyone ever shined a flashlight in your face? Our kids don't play with flashlights because they do that to me. And it's funny, isn't it? At least they sing so, right? You all, we need to turn the flashlight on in some of our neighbors' faces. We need to speak from the public square that you all may not do that. You all, this is what children of light do. And these difficult issues of our day, does the Bible allow neutrality on these issues? No. The Bible does not permit neutrality on these difficult issues. You all, it is the ministry of the church to shine the bright light of God's word and of His holy law on those who hate God and His command. It is the ministry of the church to shine the bright light of God's Word and His holy law on those who hate God and His command. It doesn't mean that we have to point out every little thing every time. But it certainly requires you to speak up on those things that are most important. So am I telling you to go to work tomorrow and pick out the 10 things that your coworker does wrong and talk about every single one of them tomorrow? No, that's not what I'm saying. But I am saying as the people of God, there are times when we got to call out the evil, when we're in a dark room and we have to pull that light out and no one sees it and then all of a sudden we shine it on people. You all, we are the church, and God is calling to the, us to this. There was a man named Martin Luther that lived about 500 years ago. God used him to do some incredible things, and he said this, If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not professing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Let me read that one more time. If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at the moment attacking, I am not professing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. You all, as a Christian, it can be fun to connect with unbelievers and find grounds of agreement. Okay? And and I know what that's like and I know how to do it. I've had seasons in the past where I've done that way more than I should. Because I like to be liked. But if that's the only way that we're engaging them, 
And we are not shining the light on the things that they disagree with. You all, then we are not professing Christ. If we are trying to have a church that lives and exists in our culture and wants to avoid controversy for the sake of just keeping things going easy, then we are denying Jesus Christ and his holy word. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul writes this, We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law or the command of God is not laid down for the just, but the commands of God are for the lawless and for the disobedient. The commands of God are for the ungodly and sinners. The commands of God are for the unholy and profane. The commands of God are for those who strike their fathers and mothers. For murderers. For the sexually immoral. For men who practice homosexuality. For enslavers. For liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. It's easy to thank you all that we just need to deliver the good news and that's it. But if we're only telling people how they can be saved and we are not holding on and proclaiming the law of God and shining the flashlight of the law of God in their face, then we are denying part of the gospel. The command of God to an unbelieving world must go before the gospel to convict a sinner so that they would need their, see their need for the forgiveness that the gospel brings. It says so clearly right here that the law is for the lawless and disobedient, for ungodly sinners, and that it is in accordance or in agreement with the gospel. You all, we have a ministry of condemnation, and we also have a ministry of reconciliation. The law and the gospel work together. The ministry of condemnation and the ministry of reconciliation go together. You all, the scriptures don't allow us to sit here quietly and to never speak outside of these four walls. It is the ministry of the church to shine the bright light of God's word and his holy law on those who hate God and his command. Look at verse 14 of our passage. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We are calling sleeping sinners to awake. We are calling dead people who are breathing and living and moving around, we are calling them to come out of their spiritual death and into spiritual life. And we are calling them out of darkness so that Christ will shine on them. Look at verses 1 and 2 of our passage. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Y'all, that's good, right? We can do that. We like that. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 
I want to ask you, have you been convicted by something I said today? Maybe you're here and you love Jesus and, and, and you know you've been saying some hard things to people, but you haven't been doing that. I want to tell you what, Christ's mercy is all over you. Run to Jesus. He covers your silence. He covers our cowardice. He loves us enough to accept us as we are. And he loves us enough to transform us so that we don't remain cowards. Jesus Christ gave himself up for us. Maybe you're here today and you come to church often. But Jesus isn't really yours yet. And maybe Jesus has been knocking at your door and you can do the church thing on Sunday. Heck, you might have even got baptized or gone up front and said a prayer. But Jesus isn't Lord over everything 24-7. When you're not here and when you're not around your Christian friends, you're doing things by yourself that you shouldn't do or you're having conversations with people that you have no business having. Maybe you've never come to God. You wear it on the outside, but it's not on the inside. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? I've said this to you before and I'll say it again. Christ loved you and he gave himself up for you. Don't mess around with that. Don't play church. Don't live off of mom and dad's faith. But make the faith yours. You all, Jesus loves every single one of us more than we can imagine. And he died so that our sins can be forgiven. If you're playing church, if you're one way somewhere else and a different way here, I want you to call on Jesus Christ and ask him to save you. I want you to repent of your hypocrisy. I want you to repent of living in a fantasy world. I want you to repent of denying Christ and lying to others. Jesus will wipe away your sin the moment that you call on him. You know how bad you are on the inside. And you might think that you shouldn't go to God because of that. But I want to tell you, no, that's not true. I want to tell you that Jesus knows even more about you than you do. And he still loves you. He still loves you. He still loves you. Church, let us work to take no part in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Let us work to expose the darkness. And let us all come to Jesus right now.